Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Good evening, I'm Marissa. And I'm Bethany. And this is episode number 176 of the Inciting Incident Podcast. And joining me once again uh, is not Bryce Blankenagle, it is my co-host Bethany, so thank you for being here. We missed you. Yes, yes, <laughs> I am so delighted to be in freezing Chicago. <laughs> yeah, it's and... so bad. And even colder Minneapolis. So we've got the frozen tundra down. And joining us tonight from the other side of the world in Sri Lanka will be Megana Nalajerla. Megan, Megana is, um, I don't even have words, right? Yeah. Like, she's a force of nature. I'm just, you know what? Let's just get right into it. Let's do that. joining us here on episode 176 of the inciting incident podcast is my friend and we finally connected after several different attempts from the other side of the world <laughs> uh megana nalajerla thank you so much for being here thank you so much for having me i'm so excited i'm excited to finally get you on too because uh we've, we've been trying this for about a year now but <laughs> finally the uh timing lined up so for 
Uh, would you mind introducing yourself and a little bit of your background, maybe how we arrived at that random space at the same time? Of course. Uh, so my name is Megana. Um, I am South Asian American. Um, so I'm part of the South Indian diaspora. And I was, so I met Marissa um, on my college campus. I was getting involved with uh, organizing around gender-based violence ever since I was in high school. And I participated in my campus's rendition of the Vagina Monologues, um, which as a show has much to be critiqued. And uh, Marissa and I have talked a lot about that in the past and have um, really connected on that actually. Admired, right? Very true. Yeah. Yes, definitely both. Um, definitely both. I think the campus where I come from, a lot of times there isn't as much space for critiquing it, um, at least openly. So I think one thing where Marissa and I found a lot of uh, solidarity with each other was kind of coming um, to the show <clears throat> from different kind of marginalized backgrounds. And me being a woman of color in that space, um, many times feeling like the show and a lot of the kind of feminism and, um, you know, uh, organizing around gender-based violence or sexism or whatever it might be on our campus was, um, to me, felt kind of a microcosm of the larger mainstream feminist movement, you know, pretty uh, much centering white women for the most part, white cis women. And we connected a lot on that. And I think that's how we kind of um, went from there. And I've been grateful to be your friend ever since. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we kind of had that thing of, we'll just make our own show with Blackjack and Hookers. <laughs> that was kind of the, the, a roundabout way of describing the conversation that we had. But it was actually for several hours and a lot heavier than that. Mm -hmm. So first of all, how did you get to Penn? Because I know uh, we are among the minority who just didn't have parents who were like, oh, I guess you're going to Penn. Mm. And why was it important for you to participate in that space? Um, okay. So yeah, I grew up in uh, Georgia, actually. So I grew up in the deep South. And for me, um, when I was thinking about college, um, I knew that I wanted to be in a space where different parts of my identity were accepted. And at that point, you know, as like an 18 year old, I really didn't know what that meant. I definitely didn't have as much language as I do today to talk about these things. But I think I just knew inside, you know, in my gut, I knew that I wanted a diverse campus. I wanted to be around other people who looked like me and who came from, um, backgrounds that weren't like white, Christian, Southern, uh, wealthy, whatever it might be. And um, so I actually primarily applied to schools up north and eventually uh, got into Penn and a couple other schools and ended up going there. But I think, you know, what's really interesting is I've also been kind of thinking about uh, different immigrant communities and kind of uh, the different privileges that people have, because within um POC or like, um, you know, communities of color, there's obviously the stereotype about Asian Americans that we're this like model minority and, you know, we, we educate our children or we have all this like upward class mobility and all these things, um, which is actually a myth because when we disaggregate what we mean by Asian American and we look at, you know, different immigrant backgrounds, it's actually a lot more complicated than that. So I do also want to make space to say that, you know, I did have, in many ways, I, I mean, I am the first person in my family to go to college in the U.S., but I also have parents 
who are educated in college in India, which in itself is a huge privilege. So I think I was kind of in this um, in-between space of like navigating this, you know, immigrant child kind of experience while also having many privileges that other folks within my community I know do not have. And um, that's something I do want to say. But yeah, I definitely don't have parents that went to school in the U.S. or went to like a very, you know, like elite institution or whatever it might be. And um, that's something that I still think about to this day. I mean, just last month they were visiting me in um, Sri Lanka where I now am kind of doing uh, research for a year. And there was some kind of alumni event going on and I wanted to bring them and kind of show them, you know, like, like this is the network that I now have access to and all these things. And I was told I couldn't bring my parents because they're not Ivy League graduates. And that was really wild to me because how much, you know what I mean? Because they really, they like, they're much of the reason why I am where I am today. And to tell the people that, you know, it's stereotypical, like, immigrant narrative but to tell the people that really struggled to kind of get me here to say that they're not allowed to the same spaces I have access to that's abhorrent I know I was I was really shocked but then it made me really think about kind of you know where where am I as a person and what are the things that I have access to that is not afforded to other people in my family just because of these like places that I have you know this institution that has given me a degree and somehow deemed me like more worthy or whatever it might be elite Yes. Um. Can I, um, while I have a second, I wanted to interject a moment ago, but I didn't want to speak over you. Mm -hmm. Um, If there are listeners who are interested in um, hearing just a little bit more about um, what you were talking about regarding specifically Asian Americans and the myth of the model minority, Mm -hmm. I highly recommend a very recent, I think just within the last few weeks, um, episode of Adam Ruins Everything, which is a delightful mm. show, Adam Conover. Um, and he talked about race, but he also specifically, and this is one thing we don't talk about a lot when we do talk about race, talked about the origins of and the problems with the myth of the model minority with Asian Americans. So mm-hmm. I recommend that episode. Um, like I said, it's just a, a couple of weeks ago. Uh, recording date is uh, January 30th, 2019, so it should be within the last few episodes of this season. Um, but please, I'm sorry, I, I didn't want to jump over you if you want to continue. Oh, no worries at all. Thank you. I actually haven't seen that episode, so I'm happy to see it. Um, but yeah, I think that's it's really cool that now that's something that's emerging into kind of like mainstream discourse around Asian Americans, um, whereas I think when I was growing up, like people didn't even know where my family came from, you know, and they had these stereotypes. And I was reading this article once that the stereotype about like Indian Americans went from being like people who come from like snake charmers or something to like software engineers. And right. both are extremely problematic for various reasons, you know? So it's just like the stereotype has changed, but there's this still, you know, we're still this like obviously like minority community that has like weird things kind of said about us and even within the own like our community you know um that's another thing about these identities of being asian american or south asian american where a lot of different experiences kind of get um flatline and get into this put into this one box so within the south asian community we have people who are from indian backgrounds we have folks who are sri lankan or pakistani or you know from nepal and all those experiences are so vastly different And we also have different religious communities and different communities um, from various caste backgrounds. And that's something that 
I think people don't really think about within the U.S. is that um, in many ways within the South Asian diaspora, there's kind of like levels of privilege, let's say, of um, so my family and within that comes from a very privileged background because we're from an upper caste background. And within South Asia, that's afforded my family historically, you know, things like access to education or whatever it might be, eventually giving them the mobility to migrate. So it's really interesting. I think now I'm at a place where I'm kind of spending more time in South Asia, thinking about kind of my history and my roots and just really realizing how these words that have been afforded to our community are not, you know, in many ways miss the nuance that we have because within our own community, like there's obviously people with privilege who have like oppressor identities and oppressed identities. And it's um, in, in the migrant community that kind of gets like uh, homogenized. And that's the problem, isn't it? As I understand it, the myth of the model minority came from basically a self-fulfilling prophecy such that um, there was this very negative view of um, Asian immigrants in the United States for a very long period of time. And then at a certain point, we started only allowing immigrants from Asian countries to come in if they had a certain skill set. Um, mm-hmm. or if they were go- coming here specifically to go to a high-level college, for example. And so the result of that is you end up with a large proportion of the Asian-American population, which is here specifically because we brought them in because they have these greater abilities. Um, and so it, you end up with this sort of circular set of um, assumptions versus results, which is the exact um, definition of a self-fulfilling prophecy. I want, if you wouldn't mind talking a little bit more about um, the diversity, because we do lump Asian just mm. as, a, as a term. We lump a variety of peoples from all mm-hmm. over a huge, vast, um, large space in multiple countries. We lump those people in together. Um, and if you, so you said you are in Sri Lanka now, um, and your family is, I'm sorry, from where? So my family is from Hyderabad or South India. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm in, I'm not, I don't have Sri Lankan heritage, but I'm here for nine months um, doing work. But yeah, I mean, I think, so one thing that I myself struggled with in college was that I was part of many Asian American uh, organizing spaces. So like our Asian American community center or whatever it might be. And a lot of the conversations that I would end up having is just when we think Asian, are we really thinking about brown people, you know? And because most often in the U.S., when people think Asian, they think of people from East Asian backgrounds. Chinese, Um, Japanese, Korean. Exactly, exactly. Mm -hmm. And I think within that, like, it was really difficult because I was being told, you know, that the Asian American space is for you. You should be here. You should you know, um, be a part of the space, but I felt like the issues that were going on in my community, which I identify more with South Asian, um, I felt like they weren't really being addressed. And a lot of times in the space, there would be, you know, two or three folks of South Asian heritage. um, And we would in some ways be asked to represent our community. And it was obviously not a fair ask because we all had separate experiences. I mean, my experience in no way represents all South Asian Americans. I'm part of a very small, you know, community that has many privileges in different ways. So I think that's something, you know, it's a burden that gets put on 
kind of all folks from marginalized backgrounds where we're asked to kind of like we're being tokenized and we're asked to represent or speak for everyone. And I think with these added dynamics of like um, religion and caste and nationality, like these things become very complicated um, because of people that end up getting that platform to speak, uh, you know, on the community end up being the ones that are kind of many have many privileges in different ways. Um, so that's something that I've been thinking about a lot. Being asked to speak for an entire minority group, I can't imagine what that must be like. That's <laughs> inside my experience. <laughs> I think, and I find it interesting because it's that experience of being asked to speak for your minority group is true of a lot of different types of marginalized group. Whether if we're talking about Marissa, who is a trans mm-hmm. woman and is asked to speak for that group and for all trans people, mm-hmm. which I mean, how you can speak for a trans man not having that experience, right. not being a man, it's it's beyond me. And uh, Megana, I believe is how you pronounce your name? Uh, Megana. Megana. Uh, Megana is asked to speak for all Asians, or <laughs> which is insanity, or even just all people from that subgroup it's it's insane and i mean i'm being asked at work for example to speak for all people who have disabilities i that's in you can't merge all of that data into one person and ask them to provide you with everyone's perspective and i think we get away from that especially in society today like when people are trying to be woke they're asking, hey, can you tell me what this subgroup feels about this thing? I want to be certain that I'm not being unkind or that I'm being a good ally. Mm. But you're not if you're only asking one person, right? Yeah, exactly. I 100% agree with you. Um, And I think, unfortunately, that's something that we have to deal with, which it's so interesting because obviously the majority, right, is afforded diversity when we're not. Like if you're whatever, like white, straight says man or whatever it might be like you don't have no one asks you to speak for your entire community ever because you are the narrative um so yeah oh i like that (laughs) oh say that again you are the narrative yeah no i actually had i was having a conversation with a friend a couple months ago and i was talking about being in sri lanka thinking about um because there's a very large Tamil community here and thinking about what it means to be ethnically Telugu, you know, which is a South Indian ethnicity and just kind of um, my experience with that. And I think at one point he was very, you know, well-intentioned, well-meaning said, I wish I had like a story, you know, like you have this story of being Telugu and like being whatever it might be like your journey. And I just paused and this person was white and I just paused and I said, but you are the narrative, which is why you don't need to tell your story, right? Like we need to tell our, exactly, (laughs) exactly. Um, And it's really interesting how I think people sometimes think that being marginalized is like fun because we, we tell our stories (laughs) and it's like, but we don't want to be doing this. We'd rather just have all the rights that you have and then we're all good, you know, but. Or if somebody um, gives you something, because you're a marginalized person, whether, uh, again, whether it's being um, offered a job um, or being given accessibility as a disabled person or whatever the case may be, like, they think you're getting something more instead of being brought mm. one step closer to being even within arm's reach of where they've been forever. Right. 
And I think uh, both uh, Megan and I have uh, probably very similar experience of that, both at the uh, V-Day community experience itself, but also at Penn in general, because there's there's a certain class that gets into Penn because of who they are or who their parents are. And then there are those of us that have to make up the majority of their uh, rejection rate. And I think, you know, when someone sees a person of color or a queer person or anything like that on campus, they have that default assumption of, oh, must be affirmative action or something, you know, bullshit like that. And uh, I think that attitude, unfortunately, uh, permeates a lot of the experience being an outsider to a certain social economic class at Penn. Would you say uh, that you had that from a different uh, side of the equation, obviously? Yeah, I thought, I think... I actually felt that very heightened in my senior year where I was writing my thesis um, and I studied psychology and I'm very interested in kind of uh, mental health within communities of color and immigrant communities. Um, So I was doing my senior thesis on South Asian immigrants in the U.S. and kind of the way they conceptualize depression. And I had two mentors who were both white and they were both very accomplished and well-known in their field. Um, but I constantly felt imposter syndrome, you know, this, which is this idea of like not being qualified enough to be in a space or not, not being eligible or like, um, feeling like I I shouldn't be there, that I don't deserve to be there. And I constantly felt like, is my work important? Is it worthy? Is it, um, you know, is it going to do anything for the community and constantly feeling like not qualified enough? Uh, so I think I did very much feel that. And I was also um, one of, I think, two people in my thesis class who was a person of color out of maybe 12, you know, and that's a very, that's not like a proportional representation of the entire major. Um, so that's something that I was feeling a lot. But I think at the same time, again, being Asian American, we're kind of in this very interesting position where you'll see a lot of Asian Americans actually campaigning against affirmative action because they're being very anti-black and they're not really thinking about um, what even is affirmative action, right? They just think that it's somehow like used against the Asian community without being fully informed about the issue. So I think in that sense, like being Asian, you're kind of in this interesting position of obviously being a person of color and being a minority, but at the same time, our community historically has... um, kind of played this game of are, are we closer to whiteness or are we closer to blackness? And it's really not a binary is what we're trying to say, but I think that's what kind of, that's what the narrative gets made into. Um, and Asian people become these, like the, the model minority myth, right? Like they become these people that are aspiring to be white um, in the dominant discourse, but that's not necessarily what is actually happening. Isn't there currently an ongoing um, anti-affirmative action lawsuit on behalf of Asian Americans at Harvard? There's an on- I think there's an ongoing lawsuit. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, to be fair, I don't know too much about that specific issue, but I, I, I do know... I found it on Google. Uh, Students for Fair Admissions versus Harvard is the affirmative action on behalf mm. of Asian Americans. Oh, sorry. I think I'm, 
Okay, sorry, I missed the first part of um, what you had said. Yeah, I, I do. I think I heard about that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's. Um, I I will never. It's kind of like um, in an election year, for example, when you see people voting against their own interests. So, like you see, um, you know, poor white people living in eastern Kentucky or West Virginia or what have you voting for Republicans who want to take away the very benefits on which they survive. It's kind of like that when you see people, um, whether it be an Asian American or or whether it be a person of color of any race, um, being anti-affirmative action or being anti any of these kinds of programs. I don't fully get it. Maybe you do. Do you get it? Do you understand why that would happen? Um, I don't know. I think, I think there is this myth or I I don't know, again, I don't know the actual like numbers, but I think the stereotype is that, um, you know, Asian people are disproportionately represented, like overrepresented at universities. So I think within some Asian communities, the idea is that, um, we're being like we're being Asian is being used against us in the admissions process, which is not true. But I think oh. that's the narrative that people kind of embrace, and they feel like they're not getting kind of. It's harder to get into college if you're Asian. Is this narrative that gets put out, which is not true, but that is the story. Um, and if I think last time I checked, like two years ago, affirmative action actually benefits white women the most. Um, and I'd have to pull up that article and, and look into it, but. The, the stereotypes we have about affirmative action are, are actually very, very untrue, which a lot of people don't know. But I think it's really unfortunate that whenever the Asian community, uh, and this is not across the board, but in some instances when the Asian community has organized very publicly, it's been for some of these more you know conservative causes, which you wouldn't necessarily expect. But looking at the racial history of Asians in the United States, it's not necessarily surprising either. Um, for example, I remember that case where I believe it was Peter Liang, who was an Asian American police officer, um, who I believe had shot an unarmed black man. And there were a lot of, um, and this case was a while ago, so I might not have all the details right, but I remember there was a lot of folks, you know, organizing, saying that we shouldn't indict him, like he should be let off the hook. And it was really unfortunate, um, you know, to see that so many people in the Asian community were um, being really racist and not really thinking about kind of how the U.S. is imperialist and it's like a police state. And in many ways, policing has been used against communities of color historically, including Asian people. Um, but that's not something that we often kind of think about. But then again, I, I do want to say that there's many folks, like I'm part of many progressive South Asian circles that have taught me a lot about kind of pushing back against these narratives and really, you know, um, working with folks in our community and educating our community. And there was an entire group that wrote an open letter to Asian American parents about Peter Liang and said, hey, we need to think about this more deeply. Like, let's talk about this. Um, so I think there is kind of folks on the other side pushing back. But unfortunately, this has been something that exists in Asian communities. And I do think it's important for us to name that um, so we can address it better. Yeah. And what really impressed me meeting you was how enthusiastic and angry at the same time you could be. Like I, I was just blown away by your eloquence and how 
passionate you were. And it really drew me to you because, you know, that that's kind of what I go on to is passionate anger. And I think we bonded over that. Mm-hmm. But I I fully acknowledge we don't have the same experience, but we were in the same space dealing with the same bullshit just for different reasons, right? Mm-hmm. You know, one thing I always tell my friends that I learned from meeting you was the power of finding solidarity with people from different communities, because I think we talked about this when we were hanging out, but I was in a place, I think, for a long time of distrust around white folks, you know, feeling really scared to talk about my experiences or race or whatever it might be with folks who were white. And I just, because I just had had such bad experiences growing up in the South or whatever it might be, um, not that racism doesn't exist in other parts of the country, but just in my own experience in the South. Um, and meeting you, I think, made me feel like, okay, that's actually not true. Like I can, you know, open myself up to you and share this with you and feel very validated and heard and try to do that for you when you talk to me about things you go through. Um, and even though I've always like known that, I think experiencing that in an interpersonal relationship is so cool. Um, so that's something I'm always just thinking about in our interactions. And I think something I'm extremely, extremely grateful for. Oh, <laughs> well, thank you. And, you know, that, that's something I've really only begun to understand recently as well. Um, I've always been afraid to speak at all in regards to anything about race or, uh, you know, marginalization. Mm. But I've always felt that if we don't make our experiences accessible in any way, then people have no reason to empathize with them. And I think, above all, our interactions gave, uh, gave us some learned empathy from each other. Because while, while we do acknowledge the differences between um, inherent racism and inherent transphobia, we often see that the source is similar and that mm. the tactics are similar and the vernacular is similar. And I think that's part of what really gravitated me toward you as well, because for the first time, I'm kind of like you was sitting there going, I get it. Like, I see, mm. I see what she's saying on a level at which I understand that it's not identical, but it's similar enough that I can grasp it. Right. And I think that's so beautiful. And I really do think we need more of that. And I think we've also had conversations around like how allyship is a process because I, I have done this in the past and I know sometimes my friends do this where we think, you know, we read something about a certain issue or whatever. So now we know and we're good, you know, but it's like a constant process of unlearning. And um, there have been definitely instances where I have not shown up for, the trans community in ways I could have. And I think that that's something I think about and I try to do better. And just being able to admit that I think is important in growth, you know, because a lot of times, like I have friends who are afraid that they're going to like mess up and say the wrong thing about race and then it's over. Um, But it's not like that. Like we, you know, we mess up, we do things that are not great. We don't show up or we, we do it in a way that's harmful. And then we, someone tells us, Hey, like, this is not great. And then you change and you move on. And I think, I think that kind of a relationship and, you know, um, process is so important, but with things like disposability culture, where 
this idea, you know, or canceling culture, this idea that if you quote, like mess up once, then you're done for. And obviously it's, it's a, it's a spectrum. Like there's different ways of messing up, but I mean like using the wrong word or like not knowing about a certain issue. And then just out of like um, not being informed because no one told you. And a lot of times I think people are afraid to learn because of that, which is really unfortunate. So that's something that I'm trying to unlearn because I definitely came from very much a disposability culture space within um, activist spaces. And I was doing that a lot of just saying like, this person is problematic because of this reason or whatever. And it's a matter of, I'm trying to be a little bit more nuanced about that. Um, And I think that's something that with us talking and, and, you know, having discussions around allyship and solidarity, that's something I've been trying to reflect on more as well. That's beautiful. And I think it would be a good, it would be good to demonstrate through uh, that shared space that we did have uh, last time we were together, because I've told this story uh, and we've both published this story Mm -hmm. um, where there was, 70 people in the, in the space for V-Day. I was, to, to my knowledge, the only trans person there. And I would say, what, maybe 5 6% people of color? Mm-hmm. And there were, we were all sitting around in a circle time, which is supposed to be a free space, where you know anybody can express what they're feeling. Because it's a highly emotional and vulnerable show. And you spoke your truth. And then someone else spoke. And Mm. I think you, me, and the other people of color there were sitting there going, is this woman fucking serious? (laughs) Because she was saying, like, about how her mother loved the show, so that made all its flaws okay. Right, right. I think that's one of the biggest signs of unrealized racism Mm. that we come across is that white people are willing to give each other passes Mm. when they like something or when they like a person. Right. And, you know, just kind of, they're like, Oh, well that, that wasn't the best thing to say, but Mm. you know, and maybe it's overstepping a boundary a little bit, but I really felt connected in that moment of being like, I just heard you. Mm. And then I heard this Mm. and I'm sitting there going, holy shit, this is worse than I thought. Mm. Yeah. And I mean, I don't know if maybe I should give some context, but we were both in the show and um, this is my senior year, my fourth year doing vagina monologues on my campus and I think, and, and, to, and I do want to say also, because I know Marissa, you agree with me on this, I think that there have been a lot of people, like a lot of women of color, um, queer women in this space who have tried to make changes and who have tried to diversify the space. And in some ways it's gotten better. But I think the thing that that night um, that Marissa was referring to that I spoke was, I was just feeling so low because it was my fourth year. It was my final year doing the show. I had done it all four years I was on campus, but I felt like we were having the same conversations on loop, you know, the same conversations where people would come in and say, Hey, intersectionality, let's, you know, we need more women of color in this space. We need more um, programming, addressing women of color. And then everyone would say, yeah, yeah, yeah. We, we need to do that. We'll do better. 
and, and do a little thing here and there. But fundamentally, it felt like nothing was changing to me. And this is my opinion and my personal experience. And I'm sure there are other women of color in the space or other people of color who um, might feel different. Uh, and I don't speak for all of them. But for me, I felt very just distraught. And that night, I just kind of, you know, cried. And I was like, I need the white women in this room, the white folks in this room to think deeply about what you are doing for women of color when you walk out, right? Like, don't just come into the space or come to the show and say the right thing and, you know, tell me my sorry looks really pretty and then walk out and not do anything about it um, because that's the biggest problem. And I think that that was probably a lot for some folks to hear. Some folks took it to heart and came up to me after and said they really appreciated it. Um, but yeah, the, I remember that night very clearly. And, you know, it's the most, I don't even know. It's the most like interesting thing, just thinking back because, um, it, it's just unfortunate that we have to have these conversations on loop. And I, Maurice, I'm sure, you know, what that feels like, of course, um, coming from, you know, a community that gets othered all the time, but just having to say the same thing over and over and over again, sometimes to the same people and like nothing changes, you know? Um, but I think I remember that night very clearly. <laughs> same. And what I chose to do with the platform I was given was I was the only one who was allowed to speak freely mm -hmm. other than your one sentence that you had to fight to get. Yes. <laughs> and I chose to use that to try to elevate as many others as possible who weren't being elevated by that show. Mm. And part of it was the previous year, which we were both in, mm -hmm. I was the first trans person ever cast in 17 years of that show. Mm -hmm. And I, and I wasn't giving the trans monologue and you know, that year, five cis people were giving it. Mm. And, you know, the, the following year, three cis people were giving it. And I think that's part of the problem where the three people in it have to come up to me and say, what's this experience like? Oh, my what do God. You go through? Oh, my God. <laughs> and it's like, I, I appreciate you asking me, but it also makes me want to say to the people who are in it, uh, you know who wouldn't have to ask these questions? <laughs> So I, I do think there's a lot of lip service that's given. Mm -hmm. And I do think there's a lot of people who want to be allies so bad, but then they won't take that energy and actually put it towards something, uh, something tangible. Right. And that's something you've motivated, you voted, you motivated me to do. Oh, <laughs> you get, also, you give me too much credit all the time. Every time we yeah. talk, I'm like, please stop being like, <laughs> you're being too nice. You're being too complimentary. But that's, Maria, that's also cool to watch you do that because I think you uplift people. Like you really, you have made me feel so confident about the things that I say because a lot of times I'm like, no one wants to hear my critique on this. No one wants to hear my take. And that's part of being from, you know, a community that's not like the mainstream, whatever, thinking that no one cares what we have to say. And you have really taught me that I shouldn't think like that. And that I think is one of the best tools I've ever gotten from anything. So um, that's really awesome. I'm sorry, this is like a love fest, but it's great. <laughs> well, we, we've all had rough months, I think. So mm -hmm. a little bit of good news and <laughs> positive vibes, I don't think is out of place. Um, so after 
that night. And I'm, there, there was one more thing that happened at that night that I'm going to talk about later. But uh, after that night, you um, like you're in Sri Lanka now, but you've you've sort of been enabled to travel and do the kind of activism that you were really uh, hoping to do. So can you kind of take us through that? Of course. Um, definitely. So I was pretty involved on my college campus with, you know, feminism and kind of these kinds of spaces around like um, Asian American women's groups and feminist groups and things like that. Um, and graduating and moving on into kind of the real world, I've been thinking a lot about what is activism and what does organizing look like when you're no longer a student? So I'm really glad you asked that question because I've been trying to be very intentional about reflecting on it. And I think, first of all, the biggest thing that I kind of realized is how much of a privilege it is to even be on a college campus and talk about these things. Because as a student, I could critique many of these institutions without being you know, without having a very real fear that I might be expelled or something like that. Whereas when you have a job, um, it's, it's different. Sometimes, like, you know, you might have conflict with your employer if they find out about your political views. So I just, I have a friend who is an incredible organizer, does great work around um, unlearning fat phobia and decolonizing sexuality, all these amazing things. Uh, their name is Sonali Rashidwar, if you want to look her up. Um, but... So she actually was recently targeted um, for speaking out about Palestine. And unfortunately, in the country that we live in, in the U.S., sometimes when you take certain stances, you know, there's like a very real cost to that. Um, and that's something I've been thinking a lot about is how, you know, when you're no longer a student, you kind of don't have that campus environment. Um, which in many ways is problematic, but also like sometimes the campus environment does protect you in some ways. So that's one thing I've been thinking a lot about um, in terms of how I move forward with the issues I'm passionate about. And I think also just um, thinking more about like taking a step back and learning, because I think I realize how much a lot of the uh, issues I was thinking about, while they're very important in some ways, you know, again, like I do come from very much like um, a privileged background also. So one thing I've been kind of thinking about is having both oppressor identities and oppressed identities, you know, like so privileged and marginalized identities and how as an effective organizer can I kind of address both of those things, um, especially as someone who's not a student and is kind of trying to do this work, uh, you know, within the communities that I'll be a part of, um, how to not replicate the same kind of uh, oppressive dynamics that some of the privileges that I have uh, make me do. And what I mean by that specifically is being from, you know, like an upper caste background or being from um, a middle to upper middle class background. Like these are all oppressor identities that I have. And I've been trying to think about how to be intentional about talking about them and uh, how much space I take up on these issues and whatnot. So that's been a huge part of my journey, I think, post-grad. That's beautiful. Bethany, are you all right? Yep, I'm here. I thought that what was being said did not need my voice added to it. I thought it was perfect. So I've been quiet. Oh. <laughs> well, that's... Okay. <laughs> I, I always appreciate your input regardless. Oh, no, no. You know I'm always going to input, but I thought that what was being said was really beautiful. So I didn't want to 
make it not as beautiful by adding something that wasn't needed. I, I will always jump in. You know me. <laughs> <laughs> we were just checking in on you. Yeah. It's all good. Oh, yeah. um, and I know we're both kind of, we're all kind of on limited time here uh, as I have to try to somehow start my car in negative 29 degree weather. Mm. Um, so I kind of want to end on a story that happened between me and Megana between those two separate years. Mm-hmm. And for anybody who has never been to a Vagina Monologues production, very often at the end, there is something called a call to rise where anybody who has ever been the victim of violence uh, can stand up silently. And the first year that I was in that was kind of the first time I confronted that I had been, in addition to being my first public appearance as my true self. And when I stood, I, I lost it. Like, I mm. broke down. And there was someone there to hold me up and make sure I was okay. (laughs) And then the next year, I think in some ways, I was at least able to return that favor and hold her up. And she's on this call. (laughs) So I just once again wanted to thank her for that and hope that in the time that we've worked together and the stories we've shared and the, you know, combined project that we've done, that it's been a reciprocal and symbiotic process for that. No, thank you so much for saying that. I remember that the call to rise every year has been very important for me as well. Um, The first year I was not able to stand, I didn't feel ready. And eventually the second year I did. And I remember I have my own, you know, memory from that moment is when I had worn a sari that year on stage because I was trying to represent kind of the myriad of identities I have within that space. And someone who is South Asian diaspora as well came up to me after and said, you know, I saw you stand up, you know, wearing your sari, like being your full on brown self, however you wanted to represent that. And she said, I I stood up because I saw myself represented in you. Um, And that was, it just really spoke to, I think, why we do this work and you know, to see other folks in our communities who have similar backgrounds as us, who might experience, you know, similar things, feel represented, feel seen. And I think it was so important for me to to feel seen as a brown woman in that space, but also make sure that other brown girls felt like they could be seen and that the space was open for them. So, um, yeah, no, that that was a very beautiful night. And Thank you for sharing that with me. Well, I'm glad to. And I'm, I'm glad we can help each other mm-hmm. in that way. And that's kind of what this kind of activism needs is we use the privileges we do have to help out those who don't while acknowledging the ones that we do have. Right. Because as a white person, regardless of how marginalized I am, I will never understand what it's like to have brown or black skin in America mm. and I try to use that to bring community and symbolism and raise the volume of the stories of those who do. And I've seen you do the same in turn. And if we keep 
those kind of relationships and communication avenues open and raise each other up as a community, that's how we overcome it. That's how we progress. So you are doing <laughs> wonderful things in this world, Megana. Thank you. And I am a huge admirer of yours. And I'm glad that I was able to share a small part of it because uh, you are going to do amazing things and you will continue to do so. And I am beyond honored to have you share this space with me. Thank you so much. I'm so honored that you invited me on the show. And I'm so excited to see all the amazing things you're going to do and read all the books and listen to all the podcasts in the future, too. Oh, thank you. So thank you for joining us. Thank you, Bethany. Thank you, all of you. And for, what, 12-hour time difference? Yes. Yeah. Uh, we is, did it. We been, made it. We, we sure did. <laughs> we made did. it happen. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. So how did you put it, Bethany? Force of nature? Yeah, Force I think that's a good of nature. Holy shit balls. Yeah. Jeez. Like like I'm I was fired. Yeah. I was sitting there, you know, in the locker room of the V the V monologues. And you remember that was a very important night for me Yes, uh, to go back to my alma mater and be able to speak and perform. And she's what I remember from that night, because as I listened to her speak and as we spoke, you know, communicated and shared stories and spoke of marginalization. And then when she spoke up in circle space, like all I could think was this girl's going places and I want to be any part of it. I can. Right. Just like hang on and, and enjoy the ride. Cause she's going to do something awesome. I can't, I can imagine what kind of strength and resolve and um, force of will. And gosh, I can't even use strong enough terms to describe this woman that it took for her to do all of the things that she's done so far and all of the things that she's planning to do and doing today. I mean, genuinely, I, I was very quiet toward the end there and I was listening intently to what she had to say because every word out of her mouth was an inspiration to tell me I can do something today. I can do something tomorrow. Yeah. Uh, I, I would compare it to the first time I heard Alex and Man Mandisa. Mm -hmm. uh, um, just, you know, those words that are heavily critical and don't hold back the truth, but who also compel you and yes. who make you want to be better. Yes. Get angry with me because if you get angry with me, I'm going to do something about it. Right. Like the emotion and at the same time, the just the strength of character that's behind everything she says was genuinely what was inspiring me so heavily. And I mean, don't get me wrong, like the story of the two of you and like how you met and the whole experience is really beautiful and I really enjoyed it. But I think what I really didn't expect and was blown away by was her fuerza, her force, her strength. It was damn i'm into yeah. it i hope she comes back same uh that one like she was part of a piece 
that night where uh, two different people were reading, basically screaming sentences saying like, my vagina is not this or, you know, owning moments. And she had to fight to have the line added because I've talked about it before. Eve Ensler is notoriously difficult to work with in these circumstances, but she got it. And I will never forget her screaming. My sorry is not an excuse to fetishize me. And just that sentence, like every syllable, every second, every rise of her voice, it was just commanding. And oh, God, she is if you if you didn't get to see that show, like I can't truly describe just how incredible this person is. And I'm privileged to know her. Uh, also, if you want to read a little bit of her story, she did write the foreword to Once Unspoken, which you also contributed to, Bethany. So, yes, yes. Um, I am actually I'm quite honored to be in the same book with so many amazing people, including the two of you. That's that's a pretty wow. awesome experience. Um, so, uh, I think we have some um, housekeeping things. What are uh, What's on the horizon for the um, live show? Are we still we're still planning on holding it at the um, hotel? Yes. Yes. So okay. that that'll be sometime this summer. I haven't quite even started the details yet, but uh, that it'll be a good space and it'll be an accessible one. Um, we did get some hope that we would also do something in the Pacific Northwest, yes. and that's definitely on our radar. But I think with what both of us have dealt with in the last year. Yeah. Um, it'll be a little bit easier to uh, travel to and book this kind of space financially, because I don't know. You're I don't broke, know if I, yeah, I don't know if I've spoken on this before, but both of those shows put me at a huge loss. One I was willing to take, but a, a loss nonetheless. Like, right. You know. we, we definitely, um, It'll be an interesting place to be. It will be a less expensive place to be. And like we said before, um, I think the just the general uh, logistics of it being in a hotel where people can stay, I'm hoping that listeners will enjoy that um, and enjoy having sort of a, a one-stop shop kind of situation. Still looking for um, uh, listener responses to that decision that we've made. If you're really, really angry with us or if you really love it, please do tell us. Uh, reminder, Riss is on Facebook. I'm on Twitter. Um, and also, uh, if you have ideas for um, the Pacific Northwest that you think will work out well for us and that will be um, not outrageously expensive, we're still looking to get out there sometime, hopefully within the next year. I would say that's a good that's a good goal to have because mm. I was just there this weekend and goddamn, do I want to spend more damn lovely i know yeah yeah, i want to be there i want to be there right now where it is not negative 56 degree wind chill yeah that too (laughs) (laughs) Uh, i found this bookstore called the left bank bookstore right in pike place and it's like super activisty stuff and it was so wonderful and i i bought a t-shirt and I, I even got the matching tote bag and sticker and it just says, read a fucking book. And I'm like, that's like the best T-shirt Perfection. ever. That's wonderful. Yeah. So if you want to support our work and help us get to the Pacific Northwest easier, <clears throat> you can do so at patreon.com slash inciting incident podcast. And one more thank you to 
Magana because uh, she is an amazing person and like had basically had to come on at 730 in the morning her time to make this. So she's a badass and she's someone with whom I'm proud to be associated. So, um, gosh, we could bring her on as third co-host. <laughs> right? <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. So. If it weren't a 12 hour time difference, I think we should consider it. But she does live in Sri Lanka, so that would be a difficult one. I'm sure it would. But Megana, if you've made it this far, uh, the invitation's open. So thanks a lot. We will see you next week. Only 23 episodes to go until the big number 200. Also, only nine to go for the 100th episode of The Sister Getting Out of Hand. And the day this airs will be my three-year anniversary in podcasting so it's uh a few things have changed since then <laughs> couple of one yeah. or two i wonder if anybody's been actually been in since episode one i don't know if you've been listening since episode one please reach out to the show we want to know we want to hear from you yeah back when we talked about movies and when my voice was much deeper and I used a different name. <laughs> For those of you who oh, those were the days. So talking about movies. Perhaps you'll hear from us about movies sometime soon. Yeah. Also, uh happy seventy fifth show anniversary since you weren't here last week. Oh, that's true. Oh, I feel so old. I feel like I yeah. age well. What do you think? Like a fine line? I think you're amazing and I'm I, I, I can't imagine having anyone else as my co-host. As much as I love Bryce, uh, <laughs> uh, you're my co-host. So. Well, and Bryce is a white man, as I understand it. Uh, yes, I believe he is. Oh. Yeah. That would really throw off your uh, quotas. You know what I mean? That's right. That's right. <laughs> so uh, we will see you next time. Have a good night. Well, I believe the air that you breathe is the same, same air as me. I can't be certain, but I guess that you want to sleep soundly in your bed. And I'm sure that we would all feel relief If our children had enough to eat If you cut us, we all bleed And if you strike us, it hurts And that's guaranteed And without faith, we all would die And leave nothing of value behind Well, I Believe the air that you breathe The same, same air as me But without hope, we'd all need help Because we would destroy ourselves No man is an island that is true Without each other We'd never make it through It seems we share Many common bonds So why can't we all Just get along Well I Believe The air 
that you breathe It's the same, same air as me One more thing that I guess We are one, some happiness And I'm sure that we would all be fine If all our dreams were realized Well, I believe the air that you breathe Breathe. 